Welcome to the DLA Piper Financial Services podcast. This series discusses the big issues in financial services, providing market and legal insight into the latest trends and challenges in the sector. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the DLA Piper Financial Services podcast series. I'm Anthony Hainsworth, Financial Services and Financial Regulation Partner in our London office, and I'm joined today by Pippa Hill, Legal Director in our restructuring practice, and Matt Christmas, Partner and Head of our International Leverage Finance Practice. Our topic today is bank resolution, and I think it's fair to say over the last few weeks there have been more discussions about bank resolution and financial stability than perhaps since at any other time since the credit crisis back in 2008. The difference being that at the start of the credit crisis, the tools that were available to manage a banking crisis were fairly limited. But now there are a fairly wide range of regulatory and supervisory tools available in the toolbox, like Bailin. But interestingly, over the last few weeks, many of those tools have been staying in the toolbox, which begs the question, does that mean that the post-credit crisis approach to bank crisis management is working or that it isn't? And that's some of the topics we're keen to explore today. And it has been a very, very interesting few weeks. I mean, if you reel off the names of some of the institutions who the regulators have had to step in and have a look at, we've had the voluntary liquidation of the cryptocurrency-focused Silvergate Bank of California. We've had the stabilisation of Silicon Valley Bank's UK subsidiary through a sale to HSBC as its US parent fell into receivership with the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, FDIC. We've had Signature Bank of New York also falling into receivership with FDIC. We've had First Republic Bank of New York being shored up, at least temporarily, through an injection of interbank deposits from a group of major banks, including JP Morgan Chase, Bank of America, Wells Fargo and Citigroup. And we've had no less than Credit Suisse being sold to local rival UBS in a deal brokered by FINMA and the Swiss government with a change of law pending so that sale can go through without the need for shareholder support on the part of either bank. So it has been a very interesting few weeks indeed. And it's probably worth starting with Silicon Valley Bank and in particular the events we saw here in the UK with the sale of Silicon Valley Bank to HSBC. So you had a a private sector investor coming in to stabilise SVB UK. And I guess that illustrates one of the key themes which we had coming out of the credit crisis. And indeed, one of the main policy decisions which came out of the credit crisis was that banks should be able to be resolved, sold, or be allowed to fail without recourse to taxpayer funds. It's that desire not to have to tap the public purse, which is one of the key policy decisions that was taken by policymakers in the wake of the credit crisis. With SVB UK, you had a large liquid purchaser come in with the financial standing to be able to support both insured and uninsured deposits, crucially. The sale of Silicon Valley Bank to HSBC dealt with one of the main challenges as to how to stabilise that bank without recourse to public funds, because it was able to therefore protect uninsured deposits as well as insured deposits, and therefore prevent contagion of a potential failure of Silicon Valley Bank UK to the technology sector. And as anyone who was following the news over the key weekend, 
it was the desire for issues of financial stability not to tip over into the technology sector that was absolutely key in the policy decision that was taken and that His Majesty's Treasury and the Bank of England were ultimately able to support there. Again, we've had a, a private sector purchaser stepping in to stabilise Credits 3 through the private sale to UBS. And what's interesting is, I think Credit Suisse was meeting all its capital requirements. There isn't clearly isn't a, a capital issue here, but there is a liquidity issue. And there was a wonderful phrase used by Senator Elizabeth Warren a few days ago where she said, we're seeing examples here of old-fashioned bank runs. And that's, to a large extent, true. Obviously, the, the issue has been amplified to a large extent by the high interest rates that we've had over the last few months. But, you know, we still have the challenge of the traditional banking model where banks borrow short through deposits and lend long through loans. And that creates a potential liquidity mismatch that always risks being a challenge to financial stability during times of stress. One point I emphasised at the outset was that the difference between the events of the last few weeks and the events at the start of the credit crisis back in 2008 is we now have a far wider range of tools in the toolbox to deal with those issues. And perhaps it might be useful to look in a little bit more detail at, at some of those tools and how they might be used in a bank crisis situation. That's something you've been looking at in some detail, isn't it, Pippa? I don't know if you wanted to give some thoughts on the special resolution regime we've got here in the UK and some of the tools available to the Bank of England in scenarios like this. Absolutely, Anthony. And as you say, it's evolved an awful lot since 2007. If we look back to September 2007 with the run on Northern Rock, and we have to remember that that was the first run on a bank in the UK for over 100 years, it was really the first signs of the banking crisis in the UK. And there was no specific regime for dealing with the failure of banks and building societies over here in the UK at all. And so the Banking Act 2009 really evolved from that lacuna in giving the Bank of England and the Treasury stabilisation powers in respect to banks and also setting out specific bank administration process and a specific bank insolvency process, effectively a terminal liquidation process. And then that was developed further in 2014, as banking legislation was across Europe in response to the first Bank Resolution and Recovery Directive to bring in the powerful bail-in tool. And along the way, we've seen investment firms and central clearing counterparties being brought into the remit of the Banking Act regime as well, albeit CCPs are actually getting their own bespoke resolution regime under the new Financial Services and Markets Bill. You know that's a, a topic close to my heart, Anthony. So looking first of all at the conditions then for these stabilisation powers to apply, and then we'll look at it in a little more detail at, at what they are. Key among those conditions is that the bank is failing or is likely to fail, and that it would advance one of the special resolution objectives, and that winding up, including via a bank insolvency process, wouldn't advance the objectives to the same extent. Now, I won't go through the special resolution objectives in full because there are a number of them. But the key ones are ensuring the continuity of banking services in the UK and critical functions and protecting and enhancing the stability of the financial system in the UK, in particular preventing contagion. So looking a little bit more at what the powers are, you start with the pre-insolvency stabilisation powers. 
Firstly, you've got transfer. So transfer to a private sector purchaser, a bridge bank or an asset management vehicle. And that's ultimately the resolution power that we saw used in relation to SVB UK to transfer it to HSBC in the UK. Then you've got bail-in, effectively recapitalising the bank using its own resources. So bail-in allows for shareholders and unsecured creditors' rights to be written down or converted into equity. And then transfer to temporary public ownership, a kind of last resort option to avoid insolvency, where the bank is effectively transferred to a nominee of the Treasury. Moving on, we've got bank administration. The BAP is there to ensure that essential services, systems, contracts and other facilities that can't immediately be transferred from a failing firm to a bridge bank or private sector purchaser can still be provided by the insolvent residual bank for a period of time to enable that purchaser or that bridge bank to get off the ground and operate effectively. So effectively, bank administration is a method of business transfer. And then the bank insolvency process, the BIP. This is a terminal liquidation process. It's heavily based on our normal liquidation process in the UK, but with some tweaks just to enhance the position of financial services compensation scheme depositors and ensure a quick payout for them. So we need to know our bits from our BAPs, in other words. Exactly, Anthony, and I I might nick that, actually. But I guess the question is, how do the Bank of England and the Treasury decide between their BIPs and their BAPs and their bail-ins? And we do actually have some guidance around that because the bank have produced their own approach to resolution document and we also have the Treasury's Resolution Code of Practice. And we saw that decision-making process in action in the last weekend in relation to SVB UK. So on the Friday night, the Bank of England had announced that it was intending to commence the BIP process, so essentially liquidation terminal in respect of SVB, absent any other material information coming to light. Well, then by the next morning, we saw the tech CEOs and founders writing to the Chancellor to express the importance of that bank to the tech industry in the UK and the risks of its failure and the likely impact in particular for that key sector became clearer. And so over the course of a weekend, that decision shifted to be the use of a stabilisation power transferring SVB UK to HSBC, a private sector purchaser. Now, I mentioned the Financial Services Compensation Scheme, and Anthony, I think you were going to say a few words about the role that depositor protection and depositor preference have to play in banking crises. Depositor protection is an interesting topic. I mean, it isn't just SMEs and retail depositors that benefit from deposit protection. Large companies have also benefited from deposit protection in the event of a failure of a UK bank since the implementation of the second Deposit Guarantee Schemes Directive back in July 2015. However, the crucial point here is that companies are eligible for deposit protection up to exactly the same £85,000 limit as retail and SME depositors. So for companies with tens of millions on deposit with a bank at risk of insolvency, there is very limited incentive for them to leave their money where it is. Banks with significant corporate and institutional customers are still likely to come under pressure from a flight of deposits if they get into financial difficulty. Deposit protection may still play a prudential role in mitigating against bank runs where retail depositors are involved, but for corporate and institutional depositors with larger deposits, the effect is is very, very limited. You've got a situation in which large companies will only benefit up to the £85,000 limit, Whereas institutional depositors, so 
companies with a financial services license, for example, will generally not benefit from deposit protection. So again, that pressure to move deposits when a bank gets into financial difficulty is still there. Now, it's worth differentiating that system of deposit protection, where at the moment a depositor may get their up to £85,000 returned within 10 days or potentially sooner. It's worth distinguishing that from depositor preference. And that one of the key differences with depositor preference is it's something that large companies don't benefit from. It's only small and medium-sized enterprises that will benefit from depositor preference. And unlike with deposit protection, depositor preference does not get depositors their money back in a short space of time. The extent to which companies and depositors will be able to get their money back will depend on which process has been selected to resolve the bank or bring its business to a close in a liquidation. And the way depositor preference is supposed to work, and it was introduced as part of the Bank Recovery and Resolution Directive, is that depositors have, or depositors with depositor preference, have preference over senior unsecured debt. So as a result of that, they have a greater chance of getting money back uh, in the event of the bank's liquidation, but they're not guaranteed to see that money anytime soon. So you can imagine in a situation in which a depositor concentrates their banking business with a particular banking institution, they may be pushed potentially into a technical insolvency by the bank going into a bank insolvency process or some other process. And therefore, it's that weight to access their deposits when they might need to make payroll and they may need to make ordinary corporate transactions to protect their business that risks the contagion from the financial services sector to the corporate sector in the event of a potential bank failure. Anthony, and that's exactly why I'm going to talk about the terms of banking and finance documents later on, obviously, but that's exactly why we saw over the weekend of SBB being eventually bought by HSBC, other borrower clients asking what the terms of their finance agreements with their lenders did or did not restrict them in moving their deposits from that particular bank. So that flight to quality was definitely taking place. And as always, people are checking the terms of their credit agreements and the, the legal contract they'd entered into to see if they could move their deposits around quite freely or not. That's absolutely right, isn't it, Matt? I mean, there was a huge amount of scenario analysis going on over the weekend to understand what steps depositors would need to take, depending on the ultimate solution that the Bank of England and His Majesty's Treasury were able to broker. It emphasises the point we mentioned at the top, which is the fundamental issue that banks have and have always had, is that their whole business model is largely based around borrowing short in the form of deposits and lending long in the form of loans. So we have this inevitable problem of liquidity mismatch that always needs to be managed. That's a real challenge, isn't it, Pippa? Yeah, exactly. And it's it's one of the reasons why contagion can be so dangerous, particularly now that you don't even need to go and queue up outside a bank to participate in a run on it. So as issues with a bank go public very quickly and get hyped up quickly online, via social media, via the press, a bank's fortunes can turn incredibly quickly. And that's exactly what we saw with SVB. But as you've been saying, liquidity isn't something that just affects the bank. It doesn't just impact on the bank itself. It impacts on the depositors too, looking at their own liquidity. 
as you've rightly pointed out, Anthony, small and medium enterprises and individuals do have depositor preference. So in an insolvency scenario, they are a secondary preferential creditor, but they don't have any certainty about when there will be a return, a distribution in that insolvency process, or indeed, actually, if there will be a return at all. And it's certainly that secondary preferential creditor position certainly isn't something that's going to help their immediate liquidity. And larger companies, of course, have no secondary preferential creditor status at all. So we've spent quite a bit of time over the last couple of weeks looking at the difference between a medium company and a large company, haven't we, Anthony? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And and as you say, that's a very, very key threshold because once a company becomes a large company, its deposits above the deposit protection threshold will cease to enjoy depositor preference over the bank's senior unsecured debt. And that threshold is crossed when the company either employs 250 or more people, when its annual turnover reaches 50 million euros or more, uh, or when its balance sheet reaches 43 million euros or more. And crossing any one of those three thresholds means that a medium-sized company has graduated to being a large company. The challenge, of course, is those classifications are dynamic, and it's possible for a large company that has lost staff or suffered a decline in both its turnover and its balance sheet to revert to being a medium-sized company again. And in both the EU and the UK, those timing considerations may be very, very relevant depending on the insolvency administration or resolution process that a resolution authority chooses to follow and the point in time at which any preferential claims are assessed. I should actually point out when I refer to there being euro thresholds, those are indeed still euro thresholds here in the UK. One of the consequences of the onshoring of uh, European legislation is that we are still applying euro denominated thresholds here in the UK for our medium or large company tests. So that's an an interesting uh, side effect of Brexit. And what I always struggle to understand, and, and forgive me, I'm a humble regulatory lawyer, is what depositors can actually do if they can't access their money. You know, do they end up technically insolvent or is there anything practical they can do? So what they're facing, Anthony, is an immediate lack of liquidity. And the question they need to be asking and the directors of depositor companies need to be asking in that scenario is can they keep paying their creditors? Crucially, from the perspective of English insolvency law, are they able to keep paying their creditors as those creditors fall due? And that really highlights for me the importance in these scenarios of of cash flow modelling, modelling where the pinch point is going to come without access to the deposit in the failed or, or failing bank. When is that liquidity pinch really going to bite? And that really gives you your runway for getting an alternative in place. And of course, during all of this, it's important directors need to be considering their statutory and their fiduciary duties and need to be taking advice as appropriate. Because those duties, even though they've been placed in an incredibly difficult position by effectively an outside influence, something coming down the tracks that couldn't have been anticipated at all, those directors' duties, the statutory duties, the fiduciary duties, still apply and they still need to be considering their position and whether the company can continue to keep trading. But as I say, in doing that, it's important to model the cash flow workout where the pinch point is going to arise. 
And that gives you your runway for putting in place, hopefully, some alternative liquidity. And there are options. We saw lots of options opening up over the SVB weekend, as one might call it, for companies that were facing that kind of issue if on the Monday morning SVB UK had in fact ended up in a bank insolvency process. So first among those is alternative lenders. And we were already seeing that weekend as SVB UK's future hung in the balance. There were alternative lenders out there who were making it very clear that they were ready and waiting to provide liquidity assistance at speed. We also saw on the Saturday the government talking about before the transfer to HSBC had been determined, the government talking about putting in place a scheme to fund the tech sector. So a liquidity support scheme, a lifeline scheme for tech firms in the UK. And I guess that was going to be similar to C-bills and CL-bills, the funding that we saw put in place at speed during the COVID crisis. I think it's interesting, isn't it? You know, this desire not to have to make a call on the public purse is, is the extent to which private liquidity and private capital is actually coming in to help in many of those scenarios. I mean, if you, you know, if you look at the example of First Republic Bank over in New York, it was, you know, interbank deposits from other large banks in the financial sector, which gave First Republic the liquidity injection it needed to shore it up. And I, I don't know if that's an example of the post-credit crisis, crisis management tools working, that actually it isn't always necessary to make a call on the public purse. And there are increasingly private sector solutions from both inside and outside the financial services sector, which are being drawn on to stabilise banks when they get into financial difficulties. Maybe that's a positive theme. Absolutely. And that's exactly what we saw with HSBC taking over SVB UK over here. I think with First Republic Bank, we're still all sort of waiting to see whether that is actually going to have the hoped for effect. But there are other alternatives as well in terms of short-term liquidity for people who are companies that are facing the loss of their deposits. So there's also the option of going to the existing equity and doing a very speedy equity raise. And we did see some clients looking at putting that in place. That can sometimes be put in place very, very quickly over that SVB weekend. And of course, also, if you can't get something in place immediately, is there a way of stretching creditors Well, one of those solutions, so alternative lending, a government support scheme, an equity raise, one of those solutions can be put into place. But of course, as you said earlier, Matt, it doesn't just impact on the depositors of the bank. There are also implications for those who've borrowed via the failing bank, aren't there? Yeah, thanks, Pippa. That's exactly right. And as actually Anthony said before and yourself as well, of course, that since the global financial crisis, there's been a lot more tools in the toolbox on the regulatory side. That's also true for the documentation terms developed by the Loan Market Association, the LMA. So if you could take anything from this, it should be good news that there is a system in place to try and cater for both an impaired agency bank and also a defaulting lender in a club or a syndicate of lenders. And of course, we saw some of those being exercised when sanctions caught a few people out with the war in Ukraine at the start of last year, when suddenly you couldn't lend or make payments to certain banks in those syndicate clubs. The intention in the documentation is to protect both borrowers and other non-defaulting lenders alike, because they're all exposed to the same defaulting lender and the risk that they pose. The devil is inevitably in the detail. And if you're not documented on loan market association terms, then of course, you're going to want to see what your rights actually are. 
But first looking at what defaulting lender means, well, it's basically a lender that can't actually honour its commitments under its facilities. Now, there could be a difference here between drawn and undrawn commitments that that lender has to the borrower. You know, if it's drawn, well, the good news is that you don't have to repay that loan immediately. It doesn't accelerate the loan repayment to that defaulting lender, but neither does it mean forgiveness. The loan just remains in place and will be serviced in the ordinary course of business, making interest payments when due, and so on and so forth. You would, of course, probably need to look to refinance that lender out at a certain point in the future, because if you have follow-on funding requirements from them for a new exercise, or if your facility is going to mature in the next two or three years and you had an insolvent lender in there, then you're going to look somewhere else to get a source of capital for your future funding needs. And of course, if you're looking to do a refinancing now, then you'd need to consider the costs of that refinancing. I don't just mean documentation and legal fees. I do mean any break costs that may be associated with paying that lender back early. And of course, any hedging that was put in place, any break costs for the hedging and any security that would need to be released and then retaken in favour of your, of your new lender. So it, you should be okay with a drawn loan from a defaulting lender, but there's still a process to go through to make sure that you as a borrower have the funding requirements that you need moving on into the future. There's a bigger issue if you have an undrawn commitment from a defaulting lender, and that could be either be like capital expenditure or development finance in the real estate finance world, where you need to draw down to keep growing and developing out your property or your machinery, or a revolving credit facility for working capital purposes. And in which case there, you might have a genuine liquidity issue that Pip referred to before, and managing your cash flow is going to be really essential for those borrowers and the lenders to those borrowers alike. If you have a revolving credit facility, which is one that would generally need to be repaid and redrawn at the end of each interest period, the good news is that you can term out, as we call it, the defaulting lender's participation to the end of the maturity of that revolving credit facility. That means you don't have to repay them at all because they might not be able to re-advance the funds to you the following day or the same day, and therefore you would have a liquidity gap. So actually by terming out the revolving credit facility lender, you keep that cash in your business almost as core debt as it were. That defaulting lender would also be disenfranchised. So in a syndicate of multiple lenders, their voting rights would be tailored to reflect that they are no longer going to honour their undrawn commitments and they can get things through for amendments and waivers without taking that amount into consideration. And finally, there is the increased commitments clause in documentation, which allows your existing lenders or even new lenders to come in and step in and, and plug the gap that that defaulting lender has left in your revolving credit facility. All of that will take time, of course. That will find you know, willing lenders to step up and plug the gap for you. So again, managing your cash in the short term, like Pippa mentioned, is going to be essential for you as a borrower. But there are tools available to help you step around the problem should you have a defaulting lender in your club of lenders. Similarly, the impaired agency regime, that's something where you can actually just bypass the agent now and pay the lenders direct. And again, over the weekend of SVB being bought out by HSBC, these were exactly the times of terms and provisions we were getting our borrower clients asking us to check to see what it would mean for them if they had either SVB in their club and would they be a defaulting lender and what would it mean for them? Or if they had SVB as a facility agent and what would it mean for them in terms of making an interest payment that following week? So again, speed was of the essence here to make sure you analyse your documentation, look at the terms and understand what you can and cannot do as a borrower in order to help yourself out of the situation where you have a defaulting lender, which was not a problem of your making. I guess the other things to think about just uh, around the immediate impact on making payments to and from lenders would be transfer provisions in loan agreements. They often will restrict certain transfers to lenders on a pre-approved lender list. If you have a defaulting lender who is now on that list, you may want to look to strike them out so that other lenders in your syndicate can no longer lend to that or transfer their commitments to that defaulting lender. 
We also have to consider acceptable bank ratings as well, which can impact upon the definitions of cash or cash equivalent investments in your credit agreement. And depending upon the types of financial covenants that you have to monitor, then actually if cash has to be held with a certain bank with a certain credit rating in order to reduce your total net debt position for your leverage covenant, then you need to consider again where that money is deposited and do you need to move it out of a lender that's a defaulting lender for all the reasons we talked about before in order to make sure that you get the benefit not just for say, keeping the cash out of the hands of the insolvent bank and making sure you can have access to it but also for calculating your financial covenants. And I guess lastly then set off and some questions were being asked about would it be possible to set off deposits held with a bank against the loan owed to that bank. I think it's fair to say here that actually most loan agreements are not going to be the friends of the borrower here because they will, generally speaking, prohibit a borrower setting off any money it is owed by a lender against the money it owes to the lender. And in that case, if you did have a large deposit on deposit with your lender that's now gone insolvent, you would need to wait until the insolvent regime kicks in for you to actually get your hands on your deposits. And Pippa, I think that's something that you've been looking at as well. Yeah, so in a bank insolvency process, effectively the terminal liquidation process, as in a traditional UK corporate insolvency, corporate liquidation, the set-off of debits, credits and other claims between counterparties with mutuality between them automatically applies. Other processes can leave companies in a very different position, however, at least in the short term. So a bank administration process, for example, doesn't automatically apply set off until the administrator, the bank administrator, determines to make a distribution which enables trading of positions with a view to set off even after the administration starts. So set off can be quite a complicated beast in insolvency as well. I think that's all hugely interesting and we can see with such a dynamic situation there's always going to be more to talk about. The key point for me coming out of the recent events is that we haven't really seen bail-in being used. And I suppose the challenge with bail-in is for even those banks that pose a sufficient risk to financial stability for bail-in powers to be used, it's still the larger corporate and institutional depositors that risk having to bear the cost of recapitalising the bank out of its own balance sheet if there's not going to be a recourse to public funds. I mean, under the no creditor worse off principle, the treatment of claims in a theoretical bank insolvency is the key reference point for whether claims may be written off or converted into equity using a bail-in power. And that principle means that uninsured depositors should not really expect to do significantly better out of a bail-in than out of a conventional bank insolvency process, even if the use of bail-in tools is able to preserve some going concern value. And I think it's those limits of the bail-in regime as a firewall between the banking sector and the corporate sector, that's one of the reasons that the bailing tool has largely remained in the toolbox through recent bank failures. And I don't know if what we've seen over the past few weeks, could that lead to some reform of bank stability rules? Are we looking at a regulatory issue here or an interest rates issue? I mean, do you think more reform could be on the horizon, Pippa? Well, I'd say we've already had reform both on the capital adequacy side and indeed on the the resolution side, substantial reform since the, the dark days of 2007 and 2008. And what we've really seen now is the first situation where those reforms are properly being tested. But actually, 
So far, I think it was good news for SVB UK's depositors and borrowers. The transfer to a private sector purchaser appears to have worked very well. I think a major bank insolvency process, a major BIP, is going to be much more of a challenge, however. Matt, have you got any final words of wisdom for us? Uh, well, thanks, Pippa. Look, I, I would agree that the, um, the purchase of SVB being acquired by HSBC was a good outcome f- for all concerned, the, you know, the people at the bank, the people who bank with them, the borrowers. And, and I think HSBC are particularly happy as well that they've now got access to a, an exciting technology client base as well. So I think it's probably worked for everybody involved in that transaction, which is the best outcome for all concerned. Checking the loan documentation is critical to make sure you know what your rights are, should that good outcome not arise. And that's what we spend a lot of time with our borrowers doing and our lender clients as well, for that matter. And I think that's what everyone will be doing now, dusting off those loan agreements just to see what their rights and obligations are, should the worst thing happen with their lender. But certainly a happy ending is always preferable, isn't it? Indeed, yeah, quite right. That brings us to the end of this episode. I'm Anthony Hainsworth and my thanks to Pippa Hill and Matt Christmas for joining me today. If you would like to discuss any of the topics covered in this episode, please do get in touch. Thank you. Any information in this podcast is for general guidance only and is correct as of the date of recording. This podcast is not intended to be and should not be used as a substitute for taking legal advice in any specific situation. For full terms and conditions, please see our website. If you'd like to hear more of the DLA Piper Financial Services podcast series, subscribe now through your usual podcast app.